A note of caution, this episode contains explicit language and racial slurs. I work with a number of um, African-American women who were really a huge part of the civil rights movement and just part of the Chapel Hill narrative. And whenever I talk about James Cates or whenever that name comes up, there's kind of a still in the room and a reflective still and a sadness. Dave and I lived on Highway 54 and the kids were small. And we got the news that James Kate had died. This is Danita's mother, Patricia Mason. In addition to the pain, I was working on the university campus at that time. So I was privy to some of the comments that were made by people that were for the university. And that was just as painful. Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they didn't understand that this was a human life. They would say negative things. They would blame James Cates for being on campus. Um, you know, he had no business being there, stuff like that. But mm. just the comments itself, I cannot remember. I can just remember. I could not believe that attitudes were out there like that. I was not used to those attitudes. That's all I can say about it. I can remember the pain that I felt and um, the revelation that there were people um, that did not appreciate human life. If I had to categorize it now, I think that was my real first test of racism and how you can be affected by it without even knowing it, you know? If Emmett Till was the symbol of the terror that could be inflicted on a young man and the snuffing out of that promise of what that person could have grown into, then James Cates would be that symbol for Chapel Hill. James Cates was only publicly described at the time of his death as a name, an age, and a race. He was a 22-year-old black Chapel Hill man. While the specific circumstances of James Cates' murder might be exceptional, the conditions and themes are not outliers. And at the root is a key thread, indifference. It's the same indifference that makes the Black Lives Matter movement necessary today. And that indifference is at the heart of what James Cates has in common with thousands of victims of racial terror lynching in this country's history, even if his murder does not precisely fit the definition of a lynching. We are still in the aftermath. We are still living in the amnesia. And we still walk these streets today among people who miss him. This is Recollecting Chapel Hill. Community history from the inside out and the bottom up. I'm Danita Mason Hogans. I'm Molly Luby. And today we will be sharing the story of James Cates, a young man born and raised in Chapel Hill who was murdered on UNC campus in 1970. 
This episode is part two of our Silent Sam series. In this series, we're exploring Chapel Hill's community history around the Confederate monument and the impact that that monument and the lost cause narrative it represents has had and continues to have on Chapel Hill. On the evening that Silent Sam was toppled by student activists in 2018, James Cates' name was invoked by activist Maya Little. And since then, there is a growing movement to memorialize Cates on campus. A photograph of the first large gathering of community members at Silent Sam, taken in November 1971, sent reporter Mike Ogle on a journey to learn what happened to James Cates. When I first learned a few years ago that a man named James Cates had been murdered on campus, the only result a Google produced was one short blog post. When I dug into research further, it soon seemed apparent that the bikers weren't the biggest part of the story. Broader injustices spoke more loudly. Who wielded the weapon and why now felt less important than who wielded the power from that moment forward and how. Mike spent two years researching Gates's life and death And just last week, on a cold, rainy November evening, he shared his work with an audience gathered in Hyde Hall at UNC. Mike has given us permission to share the audio of that talk. You'll hear him throughout this episode. You'll also hear some familiar voices from our last episode. Mike Fushi, Edric Cotton, and Jerry Neville. They're going to continue their story. And like Mike Ogle, you will hear them throughout this episode. In 1970... Jerry Neville and Mike Fushi were both just 15 years old. Edric Cotton was 18. Their friend and neighbor, James Cates, he was 22. As the 1960s were drawing to a close, the university and town authorities were often at odds with African-American youth, both on campus and in the community. The Black Student Movement, which was a growing voice both on campus and off, was not afraid to push back against the slow progress the university was making in improving the lives of Black workers and improving the opportunities for Black students. After the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968, some 40 members of the Black Student Movement marched down Franklin Street. They burned Confederate flags in front of the Kappa Alpha House, a fraternity that celebrated the Old South and the Confederacy. And the following morning marked the first time UNC woke up to find red paint and graffiti splashed across Silent Sam. The timing was not coincidental. Here, Mike, Edric, and Jerry take up the story. You'll first hear the voice of Mike Fushi, then Edric Cotton, and then Jerry Neville. The principal called my mother there, and she said, look, I'm going to tell you, your son is smart. He's an athlete. He should just let all this stuff go. He should let all this stuff. He's getting influenced by those people at UNC down there. Mm-hmm. You know, you're marching. We don't, want, we don't want our players involved in politics and civil rights. Mm. That's what he told me. He don't, they don't want us involved speaking out. You are different. You, you, uh, and, and you got a great future ahead of you. Just don't talk. I always wanted to play for UNC. Mm-hmm. I, I could see myself on that field mm-hmm. out there when I was selling drinks. Mm-hmm. You know, that, I, you know mm-hmm. I, that could be me out there. Mm-hmm. And then to have these athletes mm-hmm. come over 
the Hargraves, and I could mingle with them, mm-hmm. you know, that was, you know, you couldn't put a price on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But shortly after that, that that type of thing as far as uh, mingling, you know, them coming to the hood, that was stopped. You know, uh, was no exhibitions in, in, in the black community with, oh. with the black athletes and, you know, they, they stopped that. And, uh, mm-hmm. and we've never been uh, wanted on campus. You know, as a kid, you know, you go down there, I don't know if y'all experienced this, but Are you, 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 you sell drinks at the game at Kenan Stadium and then be hassled by the police walking back home mm-hmm, mm-hmm, until mm-hmm. you got off campus. Mm-hmm. You know. Case getting murdered on campus at UNC, a place that I had worked and 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 worked from since elementary. You know, uh, shining shoes, uh, uh, selling sodas. Uh, you know, all those things and and all the things you say, kicking you off when when you don't sort of have any responsibility down there. Right, you right. know, get yeah, off campus. Yeah, you, you had know. to be going to work. Exactly. As long know, as you're doing uh, working down there, yeah. and then after that, you're out of there. So so all of that brought back a lot of memories and a lot of sadness because um, because because we knew that. Uh, racism was at UNC, um, and 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 we knew that. I fought. I mean, I fought uh, fraternity guys all the time. We were constantly going out fighting those guys down there. Um, that was nothing to be called nigger um, uh, going on campus. That was nothing. And so you just develop a type of um, courage that hey, look, we going down there, whether you like it or not. They kick us out. We would. Am I right or wrong? Mm-hmm. We you, because we felt like. Our, our uh, families worked down there. We well, felt like we paid taxes, well, and we felt like you was not going to keep us from going, going down there. So for case to get killed, it could have been either, any of us. That's right. Because we, we, because we were not going to allow those folks to stop us from coming to that university because our folks build that university. James Cates grew up on North Graham Street in Northside, downtown's historically black neighborhood and he was living in the same house with his grandmother who raised him when he was murdered in 1970. He was known by the nickname Baby Boy, then and still. His grandmother, Ms. Annie Cates, worked for UNC for years as a presser or ironer at the university laundry for meager wages in a Jim Crow workplace. She was a central presence at St. Joseph CME Church on Rosemary Street and she grew up just across the line in Chatham County on a tobacco farm with a rough father who was born during slavery. James's father, James Kate Sr., was stationed around the world in the Air Force. In Northside, he was known as Boot. So here's a summary of what took place that night in November of 1970. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving And that Friday night, an African-American student group and the union were holding an all-night dance marathon in the new student union snack bar. The dance was very purposely interracial. The aim was to foster improved race relations during turbulent times. But only 2% of UNC's student population was black at that time. To have any kind of diversity, they would have to rely on non-students to attend, which was not abnormal. Northside's young people commonly came onto campus on weekend nights, even knowing that some risk was involved whenever they entered this territory that wasn't considered for them. 
Mike Fushi, who attended this party, picks up the story. Uh, you was talking about the university, and you were talking about the athletes, how we interact. Also, the black students there, mm-hmm. period, in general, that, came, that we interact. We used to go down there and play spades. That's right. Oh. Bowl. But, um, almost well, every, well, it wasn't 50 of them. Listen, almost yeah. every day. So the fact that we were on campus at that particular night was nothing new. We worked. They worked at the, 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 the student black student worked at the, uh, the student union. Right. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of thing. So there was nothing. So they was gonna have a band there that night, about mm-hmm. three o'clock, three or four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I think it was a band called the Doorbells or people that was down there was coming down there to listen that waiting for that band to come on. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if you want me to go at this angle go or not. Okay. Go ahead, but anyway, somehow the stormtroopers jumped on a black guy in one of the bars downtown. They called themselves the stormtroopers, evoking the paramilitary force that aided Hitler's rise in Nazi Germany. The stormtroopers were not strangers here, and the one remembered best from that night was from Chapel Hill. His mother worked at Sutton's. In 1960, as a teen, he was arrested outside the Durham Woolworth during the lunch counter sit-ins, while shouting and cursing at picketers. The stormtroopers wore jackets with the club's name on the back. A couple of years later, they ambushed a rival biker gang on I-85 in Durham in a shootout that ended with multiple fatalities and no convictions. Soon after, they became Hell's Angels and ran the notorious Franklin Street Massage Parlor, University Massage. And so back then, the word would get around in the neighborhood. Yeah. And if you mess with somebody, oh, yeah. everybody's going to hear about it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Everybody's going to hear about it. So anyway, they came to the, to the event. So they were there. They were there. And I guess people heard about them jumping on this black guy, and then some more guys, mm-hmm. black guys came in and started to intervene. Remember Jose Rogers? I know. It was, oh, yeah. I know. It was, it was, yeah. Well, uh, I was with Jose Rogers, uh, and we were – we had gone downtown, you know, where everybody used to cruise the rock wall mm-hmm. down by the planetarium and make Absolutely. that loop and then come back, <laughs> yeah. back mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. uptown. Absolutely. So we had made that, that loop mm-hmm. and we turned around, we are coming back, walking back toward Carver and got there where, uh, mm-hmm. about where the, the waffle shop is. Right. Mm-hmm. And we ran into three guys. Mm-hmm. One was had crutch and it was two more. And uh, one of them bumped into Jose. It turns out the guy with the crutch, he wasn't, he was pretending. But as my understanding, they were they were stormtroopers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that may have started the conflict. It, it got back to the block. Mm-hmm. All it needed was a spark. A little after 2 a.m. outside of the dance, four black men approached the biker from Chapel Hill and apparently jumped him outside the Union and took off. He was bleeding from his head and angry. He went to the campus police on hand, venting his outrage, cursing and shouting that he was going to kill some N-words before he left that night. Eventually, some folks heard enough of his yelling death threats and racial epithets, and a fight broke out. Some of the guys came down there, mm-hmm. uh, and, conf- and they have a, somehow there was a confrontation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and one of the stormtroopers ended up pretty bloody. Mm-hmm. But the guys, they, that, that fought with him, they were gone. They left. They left. They actually left. They, they, they fought with him. They asked. And he jumped up and said, his name was Rockwell, the big, big stormtrooper. He jumped up and said, 
I'm gonna kill me four black motherfucking niggas tonight. Mm-hmm. And just start running around with this knife. Then three or four. And then three or four of them come. Now you're around all these black folks shouting, I'm gonna kill me four black motherfucking niggas tonight. Mm-hmm. And so, good graces, you know. So, after a while, stuff just exploded. He had a ball and chain with the little spikes on it. Yeah, and he was coming up on this individual because they were running off of their mouth with this other black guy. That guy tripped over the bicycles, and so one of the guy's friends, like, jumped on his back, jumped on the guy with the ball, the chain, or whatever, or a knife, or whatever he had. He jumped on his back, and then the fight exploded. And there was about five of those guys there, if I remember, and they had those long knives. Mm-hmm. They had those big yeah, hunting knives. Yeah. And so the only thing that people could do, they outnumbered them, but you could run in, take a few taps, you know, and run back out. And when you run in, somebody gonna come after you with a knife. They gonna run behind you with a knife, okay? So there were fights. Pocket small fights. Pocket fights, just all the way, all the way around, mm-hmm. right? And so I was a part of that, because I was there, mm-hmm. okay? And I know at some point, I went and got me a couple of licks, and I saw the knives coming, and I got, I, I know you can't catch me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> More or less. Anyway, so I ran towards away from the pit. Mm-hmm. But back then, mm-hmm. I hate to say this, but I was a black man. I said, ain't no white boy gonna whoop my butt. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. That's the way I felt. That oh, was yeah. the attitude. That's the way that I felt. Attitude. That's the yeah, way I felt. And, so, and mm-hmm. so I looked around, instead of two of them, it was just one, but he had a knife. And so I stopped. I said, okay, this is on. Okay, but he was doing that nice thing. Come on, baby. Come on, baby. Okay, at, that t- at this time, this is right outside of the pit. But at that time, they had a police officer there, a black police officer named Chuck Jackson. Mm-hmm. He ran over and said, you get over there, you get over there. And me and my mouth said, he got a knife. Look at this, he got a knife in his hand. Why are you telling me? But, but, but at that time, I looked across the way and I saw Jane Cates laying down. So me and that guy were going to handle a conversation right there. So it was immaterial to me about that then. Mm-hmm. And so I just went and put my attention to him. So anyway, James Cates. The James Cates. Gotcha. So I put my attention to James Cates. Forget about the fight. And, uh, and so James Cates is a very small man. Small man. Petite, very, very and small. not athletic either. No, 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 not at all. And I believe he just kind of like wandered from on the inside, wandered out there. Mm-hmm. And... I hate to say any he was not black, a fighter. Any little, black, not a fighter. any little black man to do. You know, you're in a right. fight. Right. You're in a fight. You ain't going to look for the, mm-hmm. you, the the biggest dog to hit you. Any right. little dog could do it. And so mm-hmm. that's why I think what happened to him, he's a victim mm-hmm. of that. Yep. The campus police officer on duty at the dance had called for backup at the start of the trouble. And soon, 10 officers from UNC and Chapel Hill departments were on hand. An ambulance was called for James Cates at 2.11 a.m but the most important details were yet to come. They had start walking away there, stormtroopers, and people were shouting, y'all letting them go, why y'all letting them go? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I think maybe Chapel Hill police was down there, and um, uh, but and they, they just let them leave the parking lot. This white guy, he said he was a medic or whatever, he was putting direct pressure, pressure. on, on, the, on, the, on stop this, the bleeding. Stop trying to stop the bleeding, exactly. and he sat there, we sat there for about 30 minutes. The hospital's just right on the block. That's right. Waiting for, an ambulance. You could throw a rock. Ambulance. The right? So close. Mm-hmm. Then, and this, this Chapel Police Hall, he was sitting there. He was young. He was, he was young. And he was he was anxious right along with him. He wanted to take him, you know. 
but my cousin, my first cousin, James Lewis, uh, got killed. Uh, matter of fact, when he got stabbed uh, right there at the pit, um, I, uh, I was working out in the studio, so there was another guy working out there, and I knew where he kept his car keys. I ran inside, got his car keys, left there. I went down on Johnson Street where his mom lived, told her that he had got stabbed, left there, went on Graham Street to his grandma's house, told her, went back down there, and he was still like laying there. That's Nate Davis, recently retired director of the Hargraves Community Center and cousin of James Cates. That police officer, I'll put him in the back of my car. So I got in the back of the car and rode with him down into the to the emergency room. He never said anything. He grunted a couple times. And, and you know, lo and behold, within 30 minutes, they pronounced him dead, mm. you know, right there. The police let James Cates die. There's really no way around it. He had a large gash across his abdomen, as well as a deep puncture wound in his groin area that was the source of a massive amount of blood loss. A former army medic was at the dance in a white orderly's uniform, having come from work, and he came to James's aid. He had people bringing him fistfuls and napkins to try to staunch the bleeding. People were wrapping up James in their jackets. Ambulance services then were far from what they are today, and there was a significant delay. A Durham company serviced Chapel Hill then, but its local ambulance was busy and it couldn't reach Bynum Weaver's funeral home in Northside to come with a hearse. <laughs> Blood was everywhere, and the ex-army medic expressed the obvious urgency to get to the hospital. It was just down the hill. The police waited. Witnesses said they seemed unconcerned. They weren't tending to James, nor protecting or helping him. They even walked off for a bit. People there who knew James Cates, including a relative, tried more than once to pick him up to take him to the hospital themselves, but police stopped them. They later said the policy was not to move an injured person. After what to many seemed like an egregiously long time, finally police were convinced to act. They pulled up a patrol car, the medic and another man carried James Cates into the back seat, and they rode to the emergency room. James Cates Jr. died shortly after arrival from extensive blood loss. The puncture wound had sliced his femoral artery. The death certificate recorded his time of death as 3.30 a.m. The ambulance had been called at 2.11. While James's injuries were serious, the ER doctor who worked on him testified and told me that they did not have to be fatal. He could have saved James Cates' life if he'd gotten there sooner. By the time Cates arrived, they couldn't get an IV into any of his depleted veins. The ME testified that his body was almost devoid of blood. Unsurprisingly, there was a wide discrepancy over how much time elapsed before the police left for the hospital. Accounts ranged from 14 minutes to as long as an hour. Based on several factors, it is practically impossible that the police were pulling out of the parking lot after just 14 minutes. The position of UNC and the ambulance company, which had its contract renewal coming up. As a result of that night, the South Orange Rescue Squad in Carborough was founded. In addition, as soon as James was stabbed, and now you have a victim lying there, the police not only let the stormtroopers leave the scene of a stabbing, 
They told them to leave. The stormtroopers rode off, badly hindering any future prosecution. First, by not making an arrest at the scene, but instead arresting three stormtroopers later that weekend, it paved the way for an effective identity defense. Secondly, it meant no physical evidence was recovered. There was no murder weapon, and there was no blood evidence from the person or clothing of any of the stormtroopers. In stark contrast, five years earlier, when a white female summer school student was murdered in the campus arboretum, and the assailant was suspected to be a black male, the SBI was called in, there was a bloodhound, there was a meticulous collecting of evidence from the crime scene, and when no murder weapon was found, the police had hundreds of UNC students comb the arboretum. In that 1965 case, the police also interrogated about any black male they came across that they thought might fit the description in a multi-state manhunt that went on for years. In the case of James Cates, they had the suspects right in front of them, yet let them go. A Daily Tar Hill photographer was called at home in Carborough after word of the stabbing, and he went to campus. When he arrived, James Cates was gone, and the crowd had dispersed. So he took a photo of what was going on, which was university employees washing clean the crime scene. Again, in contrast to how the Arboretum crime scene had been investigated, UNC employees, including the head of building security, who'd previously been campus police chief, and the director of the union, were using water and a broom to wash James Cates' blood from the bricks and down a storm drain. A picture ran on the front page of the Daily Tar Heel, the only photo that ever ran having anything to do with James Cates. Yet nobody seemed to note there was anything wrong with cleaning the scene so quickly. Subsequently, after the death of James Cates, you know, there were protests uh, after, after then. Um, the guys was finally arrested, okay, and there were several Oh, several people that was witnesses mm -hmm. to it, so-called witnesses and saw it, mm -hmm. you know. And unfortunately, one of the people that was the loudest didn't know anything, didn't see anything, really. I don't think he did anyway. They used him as a star witness. Mm. Now, those guys with big beards and everything, about the time they came to court, well, they were the cleanest, sharpest guys on the and And couldn't I identify those guys? I couldn't. I, I was looking at someone face-to-face, -face, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. in the fight. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't identify him right right mm -hmm. off the bat. Mm -hmm. I could identify the Broadway because he was the biggest and the strongest looker. Mm -hmm. That was about, that was about the only one. Mm -hmm. but, but so therefore, you know, they, the guys all of them noted noted that he he was murdered. Noted they participated in the murder, mm -hmm. but nobody could positively identify one scene where they saw. It should come as little surprise that these three stormtroopers arrested were found not guilty by an all white Orange County jury. This has a lot in common as well with lynchings. Securing a guilty verdict would have been an uphill climb for any prosecutor, considering the delayed arrest and no physical evidence, on top of the difficulties of a chaotic fight at night. But the head prosecutor was also new, young, and not adept at his job, and he'd built a reputation for ineptitude over his rocky career. The town newspaper wrote of his performance at trial that he was, quote, to put it charitably, ill-prepared. Jury selection took four hours, resulting in a panel of all-white, largely rural Orange County jurors, nearly all men. 
The prosecution presented a weak case. The defense called no witnesses. The entire trial lasted three and a half days. They walked away scot-free. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that, that to me, uh, it was handled too quickly, you know, for anybody to get any justice. Mm-hmm. And that, that was nothing but a, a modern public lynching. And, and did anybody get prosecuted for that murder? Nah, I, nah. It, it went to trial. Everybody found not guilty. Myself and a couple of guys was right there and, and saw what happened. Uh, they called witness that really was not there involved in the fight and knew what was going on. I was told that the reason I was not called as a witness was because we was cousin, you know. And uh, so he found him not guilty. And, and then, you know, after the trial, there was demonstration, firebombing in Chapel Hill, you know, things like that. You know. As a retaliation from <laughs> oh, the, the, yeah. uh, the verdict. That's true. I forgot uh, about that. You know, it was, it was several teenagers were arrested for firebombing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when they got arrested, uh, their bond was higher than the people who committed murder. Bond was set for the stormtroopers at $10,000. Yet after the verdict, when firebombings occurred in Chapel Hill out of anger, and police eventually arrested more than a dozen black men, bond for the firebombings was initially set at $60,000, six times what it had been for the murder, and 15 times the pre-tax salary for a university laundry worker like James Cates' grandmother. They rounded up everybody, went back and rounded up everybody. Well, I, I, I would have been there, uh, JoJo Webb, you know, uh, we were real tight growing up. Mm-hmm. And the uh, oh, yeah. only reason I didn't go, I wasn't there because it snowed that night. Right. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it okay. was cold, okay, right. snow. I stayed in. It was mm-hmm. too cold, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, had, if it hadn't snowed, I, I probably would have been one. And then here's the other bad up. thing. Some of the people that probably was in it, and I don't know because I didn't see anybody firebomb anything, uh-huh. is that they left. So some of the people that they got arrested, probably didn't have anything. They didn't do anything. Uh-huh. You know, did not do well, they anything. Had a, they, they, they punished somebody. You know, it could have been any of us. Like I said, yeah, it could have been any of us there because we all, I all continue to go to that university oh, yeah. as, we, as we still do. So after that, um, you know, there was still protests. Mm-hmm. And the black student movement picked that, all of that up. And they were very supportive of that protest. And they, they used to invite Miss Cates mm-hmm. down there every year. I don't know for how long, but black student movement was pretty damn strong yeah. at the time. Mm-hmm. And so every year, I don't know when it stopped. They used to have a memorial service there every year on, to, 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 to honor that event. After the case was over, It cannot be overstated how thoroughly and quickly James Cates' murder was erased from the consciousness of the white public. When I first heard of it a few years ago from this photo of a vigil around Silent Sam marking the first anniversary, I assumed the Google search would satisfy any curiosity. But almost no information came up. As I began asking around, I quickly found that while people from the black community knew well of the murder, Among white people here, nearly no one did, including people you'd think would based on profession or even some who'd lived here in 1970. That's how thoroughly forgotten it was. 
Often white people I talk to would respond, I've never heard of that murder, but do you know about the one in the Arboretum? The erasure had begun quickly. Feelings set in on campus that this murder involved outsiders and was not of nor had much to do with this place. People seemed to think, well, the victim wasn't a UNC student. The alleged assailants weren't UNC students. It's got nothing to do with us. Along with the tragic nature of him dying, and what I've heard across the board was that there was a realization that black lives in Chapel Hill were not valued because James Cates was allowed to bleed out. A lot of people feel that if he had medical attention sooner, then he would still be here. And the absolute vitriol that happened after his death is something that I don't think anybody who is that age will ever forget. Because the tendency was to blame James Cates. He shouldn't have been at the party. He shouldn't have been running his mouth. And we're talking about people who lost, this is, this is a person who lost his life. So if you talk with anybody who was alive during that time, there's a sense of helplessness and also a lack of value for human life. And that was the realization that people on campus did not care about the people who were from Chapel Hill. And that was a hard lesson for a lot of people. Minister Robert Campbell, a friend and classmate of James Cates, was in Vietnam in 1970. Here he shares a poem he wrote after his friend's death. And I wrote this while I was serving in and around Vietnam. The last time I saw you, so full of life in a safe place. Was a cold, rainy night, I gave you my peacoat to keep you warm and dry. Knowing I would see you again, full of joy and life, but it was not to be. To be awakened from my bed, to be told you was dead. But I do have our boyhood memories, the fun, the games, the loss, and the wins. How can I fight for justice in a land so far away when I could not be by your side to protect you? The pain I felt and the sadness on my Annie's face, I will never forget. You were my neighbor, my friend, and my teammate as well. I will keep you in my heart. I will work for change. I pray that after this tour, I'll be coming home. Rest, my friend. Rest, my friend. Be not forgotten. James, James, James Gates. Heaven help the black man if he struggles one more day. Heaven help the white man if he turns back away. This is Heaven Help Us All by Stevie Wonder. Uh, it's not one of Stevie's enduring hits, but it was a hit in 1970 and happened to reach its height on the charts when James Gates was killed. Someone told me he remembers that this song was playing at the dance when James Gates went down. And it could be heard through the open doors of the Union, echoing off the buildings surrounding the pit. We, 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 
There was a lot that we did not include in this episode. I would encourage everyone to seek out Mike Ogle's research on James Cates. He posted it originally as a Twitter thread. It includes primary source documents, family photographs, and much, much more. You can find that link in our show notes at chapelhillhistory.org. We'll be back on December 2nd with our final Silent Sam episode and our final episode of 2019. We are working on more episodes for the new year. From the Chapel Hill Public Library in the town of Chapel Hill, I'm Molly, and this is Recollecting Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for listening. In a troubled world, I pray the Lord to keep, keep hatred from the mighty. Mighty from the small